Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as I prep for my very first trip to France here in the mountains of Utah. A quick reminder that as of release of this episode, we are just four weeks away from the launch of my new epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning. Pre-orders are a huge part of the ultimate success of a book, so if you're planning to pick it up and can do so early, I'd be very grateful if you did. Also, this episode does get a tiny bit sweary, so if you're my mother or have little kids around, maybe skip this one or come back to it later. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is author Sherry Priest. Sherry is known for work that dips toes in a number of different genres, including horror, science fiction, southern gothic, fantasy, and steampunk. She's best known for her Clockwork Century universe that started with Bone Shaker, and has also written the Eden Moore series, the Borden Dispatches, the Cheshire Red Report series, and many other standalone novels and short stories. Sherry and I talk extensively about her childhood in the South, and the way that that has affected her adult life and career. We discuss oppressive religion, spiritualism, and take a lengthy detour down her adventures in urban exploring. Enjoy my conversation with Sherry Priest. Man, it, it has been so long since we've gotten to hang out. I think the last time we saw each other was, I want to say it was Gen Con, maybe three or four years ago. Yeah, might have been. Yeah, it was uh, right before, because it would have been two and a half years ago. And I remember that very precisely, because we had just bought this house that I'm in right now. And uh, like, literally, we had just moved in the week before. And uh, I had left my husband behind with this list of ridiculous tasks, uh, up to and including, uh, please move everything out of the master closet for the closet people. Because this was a flip, and they hadn't actually built out the closets. They were just these weird empty rooms. And the closet people were coming while I was going to be in Indiana. So I kind of have like, that's very tied in my head to uh, this house and uh, that event. So yeah, it would have been three years ago this summer. Oh, man. Second last event I did. Because the last one I did was in Detroit. It was Confusion. That January. Yeah, I think my last one was a local one here. The little uh, LTUE is a little convention in Utah. Uh, and uh, and yeah, Gen Con was probably my second to last one. Yep. Yeah, it's that in Confusion. Yeah. And I'm going to try. This year, I'm, I'm, I'm in line for Dragon Con. We'll see how it goes. Oh, nice. Uh, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. It's, it's kind of my home event. Uh, I mean, I lived in the Southeast most of my life, and I started going to Dragon Con probably, I want to say my first one was maybe 99 or 2000. And I haven't missed very many. Yeah. And uh, now it's so big. It's like, you know, it's its own pop-up city uh, for a week. But uh, I don't know. I, I know my way around. I don't find it as overwhelming as I might otherwise. And uh, I think I remember that the year uh, Katrina happened. Uh, attendance was way down and they only had like 20,000 people. And everyone was, uh, nobody could shut up about it. And, and, because usually it was like 
40,000. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think last year it was, I, you know what? I don't even know what it was. I'm not even going to speculate, but it was something insane. It's, it's funny because like when you get, once you've gone to the same con every, you know, many, many years, you get like, uh, you get a vibe for it. And so, you know, even if you are, you're like a little bit, you know, shy or introverted, you kind of, you start to recognize you know where everything is. You kind of know where the big booths are going to be. And it's, uh, you know where all the hotels and restaurants are. And it's just, it's way less intimidating. Oh, yeah. It, well, it's your home turf. And uh, I've had an agreement with the with the nice people who run guest services for years. Uh, I, I lived in, in Tennessee for a long time and I would drive in for it. But now we're back in Seattle. And uh, kind of my deal is I will I will absolutely pay my way in. Uh, but will you guys reserve the hotel for me? Because that, that turned into Hunger Games, okay? <laughs> Trying to get a hotel room for Dragon Con. Uh, and they always do it. And they're, they're very, they're super helpful. I, I love them a lot. Uh, but the one drawback is you don't actually know where you're staying until like two weeks ahead of time. Ooh. Because I, I assume they're cashing out like the, the reserved blocks basically. And they do it right before the event. Uh, they've never let me down yet. Uh, but there's always kind of just a little bit of tension in the back of my head, this anxiety of, oh no, but I've already paid for my plane tickets. You know? <laughs> oh no, where will I stay? Right. I, I, I struggle with that because I'm a little bit a, a bit of a priss when it comes to traveling. Like I Oh no, I totally am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean. I, this is why it's hard. <laughs> right. It, and I struggle with that with Gen Con. I've never actually been to Dragon Con, but I've done Gen Con a bunch of times and that's you know, like the the whole hotel lottery and all of you know, and if I get a hotel way out in the boonies, do I have to Uber? Do I have to rent a car? Will I find parking? All of that stuff, such a giant pain. Oh, it's so stressful. So stressful. And like, I do know how to use MARTA and everything in Atlanta, at least. I, you know, I, I can public transport myself to and from wherever I need to go. It's fine. Uh, but boy, just not knowing up until the last minute what hotel I'll be in. Oh, man, that hops up and down on my OCD. Like, I'm that chick who prints everything out in addition to having my, my e-ticket and my printed ticket. And I have all my confirmations for all the places and all the things and all the travel. And uh, I can't do that with Dragon Con. Yeah. <laughs> I just have to cross my fingers and, and believe. I have to make a wish. Well, Burn some incense. And well, and it's funny because like I feel like when you go to a convention as just a fan, there's there's kind of a level of expectation for that kind of thing. It's part of the adventure, right? But when you oh yeah, when you go as a professional and you know that you have to be at you know a panel at two p.m. You know all these when you know you have a schedule you have to keep, it just makes all of the not knowing things so much more stressful. Oh yeah, and I, I had to set boundaries <laughs> with TrackingCon probably ten or twelve years ago because uh, I'm friends with a lot of the track directors because they're all from around there and you know, I've lived in the southeast mm -hmm. and we've all known each other for for decades at this point. Uh, so they all wanted to put me on all of their panels, which is very flattering uh <laughs> but it did mean god i remember one year oh it was probably 2011 or 12 maybe i don't know uh but they had scheduled me at one point from 10 in the morning to 12 30 a.m the next day with two one hour breaks scattered in there somewhere oh my gosh <laughs> i nearly had a nervous breakdown i ended up sitting in this hallway crying waiting for a panel to get out and some kid dressed as Chewbacca leaned over and handed me a granola bar. <laughs> it was the first food I had all day. I was like, thank you. I appreciate you. <laughs> I couldn't even get to the green room in the Hyatt. Because I, yeah, you don't have time. <laughs> no, it's not even that. Uh, there are two main hotels for Dragon Con, and it's the Marriott Marquis and the Hyatt, which is across the street from it. And over the years, they've added more and more hotels. Now there's, I think, five. But... Uh, 
So the Hyatt is where the green room is, but it's on like the 26th floor or something like that. I mean, it's the kind of thing you could hypothetically hike, (laughs) but you don't really want to a couple days into a big event. And uh, the elevator situation there in there is absolutely obscene. If you're not staying in that hotel, good luck. Yeah. Because an elevator is not happening for you. You're just (laughs) sorry. Uh, so basically everything in the Hyatt, if it's not in the bottom three floors, nobody, nobody can get to it. But anyway, sorry, my, my Dragon Con ranting. <laughs> I love it. I really do. It's, it's my favorite event and it's, it's too big and it's too messy and it's too convoluted. Uh, but it's, it's still kind of my home event and I'm really looking forward to going back because I've missed it for the last few years. Uh, and that makes me sad. Yeah. That's where all my friends are. We don't get coworkers like normal people. You know, like that's our water cooler. Right. I'm I'm sure that listeners are kind of sick of me talking to uh all of my you know author friends about this weirdness of COVID, like making it so we don't actually get to hang out with each other. Oh yeah. But that's like something on all of our minds all the time, right? Totally. I like I'm in a I guess three different Slack groups at this point. <laughs> Two of them have gotten kind of quiet, but but one of them is it's a ladies group. And uh that one that one has has held strong and we occasionally have Zoom meetups and that kind of thing. But I mean, being sociable for the last couple of years has just been, and and it's weird for like, I'm kind of an extrovert, but I also need a lot of alone time to do this job, you know? And uh, that's never really been a problem except for the last few years where I haven't had this, this pressure release valve of these events where I can go and hang out in the bar and just yell and be silly with my friends and gossip about what editor left where and what agent is now representing who. And you know, who's picking up what it's, it's shock talk, but it's also, Oh my God, it's so good to see you guys. Yeah. Yeah. I I work from home by myself. (laughs) I don't have anyone to talk to, but my husband and my dogs and my cat and they don't listen. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I I had um, a chat with uh, Brian Stavely recently and he was talking about how one of the things he does to try to not be so lonely just sitting at home by himself all day is that he keeps up on all of his friends office gossip. And I found that hilarious. Yeah, like I keep on my husband's just because he's right here and he's the only person I've basically talked to in person for the last couple of years. Uh, and, and yeah, we have some front, like I have family gossip going on that, and you got to understand like my family, well, let me put it this way. I am the fifth generation in my family born in the same county in Florida. Imagine an entire family full of Florida, man. Like we have always got something going on down there. <laughs> Well, so, like, the ladies in my Slack group like to keep up with that as well, I think. Oh, I bet. <laughs> See, I, I was going to ask you about your family because you were raised kind of religious, right? <laughs> I was raised very religious. Uh, so, my mom's family, actually both parents' family, but my parents are divorced and have been since I was little. My dad is long out of the church. But I was, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist, and they're... <laughs> Like almost any denomination, there's a spectrum from kind of normal to just 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 batshit insane. Oh yeah, and and I was perilously close to the batshit insane version at times. Not always. It kind of depended on where we lived and what we were doing. So so my parents divorced when I was about five, and uh, back then it's you know late seventies. They didn't take little girls away from their moms. Uh, even when mom is kind of in a cult. <laughs> And my my dad he fought for us. He tried really really hard to get custody of us, and that uh, didn't work. But we my my mother basically needed to live with my grandparents. I think part of that was honestly court ordered, just to keep an eye on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it was weird. And then my mother's other two sisters got divorced and moved their children in. So 
sometimes we'd move out, sometimes come back. And there was like this rotating cast of about nine people living in this house until I was, I guess, 15. I finally got into enough trouble that my mother decided she could get rid of me. <laughs> she finally let me go live with my dad, <laughs> my stepmom, who by then had a new baby, my little brother. And uh, they, they needed the child care. I needed to not uh, go to church nine days a week. And uh, that worked out pretty, pretty well for everybody, I think. But no, it, it was really weird. And so a lot of, especially like, like my earlier stories, my earlier fiction, we're, we're still trying to decompress from that. Because I ended up going to a private Adventist college and I had my reasons at the time. They, they don't seem very good now, quite frankly. But, but at the time I had my reasons. And uh, I, I, was, I, I started my writing career very shortly after college. I broke in pretty young. I was in my, my mid-20s. And I was still kind of unpacking that. Yeah. This, this, this tremendous... Because if you're not familiar, or if your listeners aren't familiar, it's uh, basically there was this Victorian girl who got hit on the head with a rock and began hearing God speak to her. And she was Ellen G. White, and she formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This was not long after the Millerite Great Disappointment, October 22nd, 1844. I'm telling you, I spent so long in Christian school, I can still rattle this crap off, and I'm 46. Um, <laughs> so she, they form this little secondary church and they go to church on Saturday and it's, um, there's some Venn diagram overlap with Judaism, most of the same stuff, quite frankly, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like the dietary stuff, uh, you know, Friday sundown to Saturday sundown is when you keep Sabbath and that kind of thing. And I went to Sabbath school, you know, not Sunday school. And, um, I, it, so God, every time I try to start explaining <laughs> the, the underpinnings of this faith, people start giving me weird looks but we're just doing audio. So here you go. Uh, basically, they think that the world, so Jesus is going to come back. It is an eschatological religion. Mm-hmm. He's going to come back and he's going to destroy the world except for his chosen people. And um, hell is not really a place so much as an event. It's something that happens. There's like a thousand years of peace. And I don't know, all the good people get to show up and turn on their TVs and watch all the bad people roast in a lake of fire. Uh, that kind of thing. Yeah. And it like you do. And there's a lot of uh, revelation seminar Stuff. There's a lot of, quite bluntly, it is it is akin to the QAnon phenomenon where we're going to parse every single letter and every single word of every single thing, and we're going to figure out what this biblical prophecy means. And we've got it, y'all. We've we, we got it. We got it nailed down. And uh, I, I remember hearing about the Whore of Babylon when I was like three or four years old, and I didn't know what any of those words meant, but <laughs> it was very confusing to me. And my grandfather actually traveled preaching revelation seminars. So he was an Adventist minister who, at least on the surface, was actually a pretty normal man and, and a good guy. He's been, well, largely a good guy. I mean, what can you say? Uh, he was an old Southern white man and he had his issues. But uh, he, he, he recorded these, these sermons and these workshops and would sell the uh, well, tapes back then. We're talking the early 80s, mid 80s, right. up, through the, up through the 90s, and kind of supplement his his ministerial income and we would do these little road trips everywhere and I would sit in the audience and listen to my grandfather give four hour workshops on the whore of Babylon and you know uh, incoming prophecy and the four horses of the apocalypse and all that and it's hard to believe I wound up writing horror quite frankly I mean but I've, but I've always told people it's like it's like kids who are bullied who grow on to become bullies like I was scared a lot as a kid yeah my earliest memories were of just being abjectly terrified of something anything and uh, now I like to scare people well, like I, oh I'm sorry go ahead <laughs> no 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 I just found that I, I found that really interesting because I when I was kind of reading a little bit about your childhood I it that very much connected for me in terms of uh, okay, that makes a lot of sense that Sherry's so drawn to kind of supernatural sort of stuff. It it, it, it you know it makes so much sense. Oh yeah, 
And let me like as an easy example, when one of my earliest memories, I, I was probably three or four years old and my parents were still married. Uh, we were in the church parking lot and my mother, who's was a very earnest woman. And I think that's probably going to be the kindest thing I'm going to say. Uh, my mother is a very earnest woman who was very earnestly telling me about how, uh, well, when Jesus comes back, you know, it'll be wonderful. All of this will be destroyed. And, and basically all of my friends who she didn't like probably weren't going to heaven. And probably not our dad either. They might have been in the middle of divorce by then because he doesn't love Jesus anymore. And not your dog, not your dog. No, your dog doesn't get to go to heaven either. That's all got to burn in the lake of fire. Uh, But not you and not me because we're good people who love Jesus. And I remember being like three or four thinking, I don't know if I'm actually that good. (laughs) I really don't. You know, I pushed a kid in in preschool the other day. I I lied about stealing a bit of candy. I I don't actually think I'm very good. I'm certainly not any better than you, know, like my dad or my dog. Uh, how is this supposed to work? This doesn't make any sense. And, and from a very, very young age, I had a very hard time reconciling the idea of Jesus loves me with, and he's going to come back and destroy literally everything uh, that everybody in your church doesn't like. But you guys are special. You're safe. And, and that, that it never clicked for me in any meaningful fashion. And it, at, at times, it was very conservative. We were, we were occasionally mistaken. Uh, Adventists and Mormons get a lot of overlap, as well as Jehovah's Witnesses. Pe- people kind of all fold them into the same thing. Yeah, and some I, of those ladies. Yeah, some of those ladies don't wear makeup and have long dresses, that kind of thing. Right. I, I grew up yeah. Mormon, and and what you're saying, uh, I, I was fortunate that I had quite reasonably normal parents. <laughs> but um, but what you're saying definitely overlaps with a bit of my childhood experience. <laughs> It usually does. Me and uh, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, like anybody who leaves those, I, I have actually a, an entire cadre of ex-Mormon friends at this point. Um, <laughs> like we all kind of find each other. And, and uh, again, it's a huge spectrum. It's a huge sliding scale of human belief and practice and social instruction. But but largely when I was younger, uh, it, it was from the more conservative end. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, one day you're going to grow up and get married and have babies and that's what you're going to do kind of thing. And I remember thinking, I don't actually know if I want to have kids. I don't like my baby sister very much. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't ask for that. <laughs> but I remember, like, my mother would force me to uh, say my prayers every night, begging Jesus for a baby sister. And I'm like, I don't want a. Why am I doing this again? <laughs> Why do I have? But, but there was all this. Well, no. If you ask Jesus, it'll be okay. Jesus says it's fine. But Jesus's opinions and support really seemed to overlap very heavily with hers and the things she liked and the things she wanted. And uh. It was just kind of like even being a little kid watching some of this, especially because my father, again, was not into the church per se. And uh, he was kind of being the sounding board on the side like, yeah, you could ignore that. Yeah, don't pay attention to that. No, that's crazy. (laughs) But, uh, okay, I remember once when they were still married. So I would have been around the same age. I would have been three or four. It was Halloween. And I decided I wanted to be a witch for Halloween. I was very excited about it. So my dad got me a costume. And he dressed me up and my mother came home and absolutely lost her shit. And I have a very, very clear memory of her holding me up to this mirror and telling me, like, you see what you look like? You look like a lady who has sold her soul to Satan. And those ladies burn in the lake of fire. Is that what you want to look like? Is that who you want to be? Oh. And my dad and my dad in the background, like, it's a costume. Yeah. She's a baby. Come on. But, but but nothing, not even the smallest, smallest little, you know, tiptoe away from, from the cross uh, was tolerated for her. And, and I mean, she was our, she got primary custody of us and, and she was our primary caregiver for the longest time. And uh, th- there was a, a lot of 
really, really strict gender conformation that, that was absolutely insisted upon in, in every possible way. And it turned out that one reason I had such a hard time with that, as I learned literally less than a month ago, is I have a pretty significant form of ADHD. And I was behaving like a boy and they didn't like that. Yeah. And, and I, had the, I had the hyperactive kind, not the inattentive kind, which is more common among women. Uh, so and girls like me were socially policed really, really, really hard. And uh, it turned into OCD and anxiety and everything else. I mean, I remember mom getting <laughs> I remember the first time I heard the word neurotic. Uh, I had been at uh, daycare, preschool, something, and the teachers had, had brought us out to this field of wildflowers, which I remember very clearly was beside an interstate. And I have questions now. But <laughs> 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 we were little bit kids in a field of wildflowers beside the interstate. And we were supposed to pick bouquets for our moms and make bouquets for them. Pick flowers, I mean. And I had seen some pictures of some bouquets. I had like a... Uh, those little stickers that they used to give you in church, you know, you lick them and you stick them on stuff. Yeah. They weren't even sticky on the back. Right. So there was one that was like um, presents for Mother's Day, you know, and there's a bouquet and there's a whatever. So I'd seen, I, I had a mental image of what a bouquet was. And I was very disappointed in the wildflower offerings, but I did my best. <laughs> and uh, at the end, I remember sitting down with my thumbnail and my finger and trimming the ends off of the bottoms of all the flowers so that the base of the bouquet looked like it had in the picture. It had been tied with a ribbon, and then all the stems were, were even at the bottom, you know? Yeah. And when I gave it to my mother, she started freaking out. <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, sometimes there's some neurotics in the family. Maybe I have a neurotic. Look at, look at how neurotic this is. This is just weird. I remember being a little kid thinking, like, my bouquet looks better than everybody else's bouquet, and I don't understand why you're not as happy with this as I am. But, uh, yeah, it, anyway, so it was, it, there was a lot. There were many different overlapping then issues of strangeness to my youth, not just uh, the religious stuff, but also the social stuff. Like my mom's family, they're from middle of nowhere, Florida. They've been there since like before the Civil War. And, and, and they, oh, Lord, I, I did not know anything about like, you know, why the Confederate flag is maybe not super acceptable. Or I didn't know any people who weren't white for a really long time. That also took a lot of unpacking and a lot of undoing. I didn't know anyone who was gay, I thought. <laughs> you know, 10 year college reunion, you find out different, but still, uh, it, it was just, it was weirdly insular. And it was like this weird little, this is this pressure cooker where everyone has to conform to exactly the same right things all the time. And uh, then when I ended up in college, I thought, you know, I thought my family was pretty crazy. Oh boy, I was mistaken about that. Uh, for one thing, uh, there was a group of people who liked to protest at our college. Again, a conservative Adventist college, uh, they would show up between, uh, we had to go to Vespers and worship sessions and whatnot. The church was across the street from the dormitory, so we had to cross the street at this crosswalk. And they would stay at the crosswalk and they would hand out this literature that made chick tracks look completely sane. And I remember one year they stole, because <laughs> it's the South, and they do a lot of uh, kind of Greco-Roman classic architecture type stuff for these old buildings. Uh, there was a pineapple, a stone pineapple on top of the big welcome sign, the big stone carved, you know, Southern Adventist University, whatever, a Southern college back then. But uh, these people stole the pineapple off of it because it was a symbol of the Pope's hat, uh, not a symbol of welcome. No, no. It was an invitation to the Antichrist to take possession of our campus. I think that's what the flyer said when we found them the next week. Uh, yeah. So every time you think that maybe your situation is as crazy as it gets, uh, you are mistaken. There's a whole nother level out there past you as it turns out. 
Hello, Page Break listeners. Brian here to let you know that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order from Tor Books. Glass Immortals is a whole new universe that introduces you to assassinations, intrigue, industrial magic, harrowing battles, heartbreaking disasters, and more for new readers and old. The book is out in the U.S. on June 21st and can be pre-ordered from Amazon, Audible, Barnes & Noble, or get a signed copy straight from my website. Remember, pre-orders matter massively to a new book, so make sure you get that done. Thank you all so much for the support. Now enjoy the rest of the podcast. There's that time. I'm, I'm actually kind of fascinated by this idea that every person, or, or I, I hope most people anyways, reaches, realizes that their parents and their relatives and the, and the people that were influential on their childhood all had their own problems and all had their oh, own, yeah. their own agendas in some ways. And that's such a oh. weird moment in your life to kind of reach. Yeah. It, for me, it was kind of extra weird because like... <sighs> I, I understand. I, I really do. Uh, when it comes to my mom in particular, uh, she was a freshly divorced woman in a Christian subculture in, in like 1981. I, I do get that there was a great deal of pressure on her to successfully conform and have her children conform. And uh, I asked her, actually, when I got my ADHD diagnosis, I was like, you know, <laughs> I've had four people suggest this to me over the years that I should you know, go and get tested for it. You have a master's degree in education. Did it never occur to you? And I want to be clear. She was either my teacher or my principal half the damn time when I, up through high school. Uh, and I was like, you have to have like at least suspected maybe something was a little neuroatypical about me. And her entire response was to the effect of, well, yes, obviously, but you were my kids. I couldn't have you behaving like that. Be- behaving like what? <laughs> and she would, so I got punted off into all the, you know, the advanced placement reading classes and stuff like that. And, and uh, that, that got rid of me or at least distracted me or kept me occupied enough. That, you know, and the first person who ever suggested I might have ADHD, I was in graduate school at the time and I openly laughed at her. Mm-hmm. I was like, I am in graduate school. I am an excellent student. This is what is the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> really? Um, don't be ridiculous. And she's like, mm, still think you should. And it's, I, I need to email her and tell her she was right. She was my uh, boss and advisor. <laughs> A uh, lovely woman who ran the rhetoric department at the University of Tennessee well, and is now retired, but we're still friends. <laughs> that And that seems kind of like, I don't know, like looking back on my childhood, I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I, so I was born in 86. So, so my kind of awareness of these things, a mere baby. <laughs> my, my awareness of these things only began maybe in the mid nineties, but that, that, feels like the time at which, you know, kids around me were starting to get diagnosed with things, right? Yeah. And, you know, mental health was starting to get talked about like quietly. Um and I I, I feel like there were some there were some spots where my mom really wanted me to get diagnosed with, you know, something or another. Um <laughs> but I think she was really terrified of me going on medication and not really understanding, you know, not not knowing what that was going to do, and 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 it, I mean, there's there's places where I feel really bad for parents, especially parents that are kind of early on in the science of those things, trying to figure out, okay, how do I help my kid 
but also, yeah, like you mentioned, all that society pressure of my kid has to behave, my kid has to reflect well on me, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, especially when you're the divorced lady that the church went out on a limb and hired. Yeah. And and, and that end of, and again, this not all Adventists, uh, but in, in in my family, at least, or at least with my mother, uh, she was she does not like the idea of of uh, mental health medication, and she kind of comes down on the side of uh, uh, well, you just need to get right with Jesus. You just need to buckle down and read your Bible and pray, and you'll be okay. And if you're not okay, well, you're doing it wrong. And uh, and that's it's extra problematic because a pretty significant variety of of mental illness runs in my family. I, I have I'm going to be real circumspect. Not that I think any of them are going to listen. Um, <laughs> Uh, bipolar and with a touch of schizophrenia pops up at least once every generation in my family. Yeah. And uh, I have someone on my mother's generational tier who uh, came and went from our place quite a lot, uh, who, um, I mean, this woman at one point uh, uh, grabbed a gun and chased her son around the house trying to shoot him because she thought he was possessed by the devil. And I don't think she ever went on anything stronger than Valium. Because that's not what you do. But then she had trouble sleeping, and so she started doctor shopping. I don't remember how many times she OD'd on sleeping pills in the times that where she was coming and going. I mean, it, but it was stuff like I remember once we were all in a car and she got lost and she got really frustrated and freaked out and decided that she was just going to run us into a wall and kill us all so we could just go to heaven and she wouldn't have to find her way out of an industrial parking lot in South Orlando. Um, <laughs> but like, like it was that kind of serious like like it's it's kind of funny to tell stories about it now sometimes but sometimes i will be telling a story and being like jesus that was really fucked up <laughs> why were we laughing about that what the hell uh but but this is not the only person in my family with these issues and and my mother has some anxiety issues as well and i think maybe has some, some other things and my sister has also had significant mental health challenges and she at least has has been very conscientious about getting help and, and medication and managing her stuff and uh but but yeah no my mom uh, is very much of the opinion that you know you just you just need to get right with Jesus and then that attitude actually got someone in her church killed at some point it was a guy who who had significant depression and he was on medication for it this would have been in the late 90s i think and he killed himself after the church talked him into getting off of them and after that she kind of softened a little bit but by then it wouldn't have mattered for me anyway yeah and i i don't know though it was all just really really even now, like my husband and I have been together since uh, like 1999, you know, and once in a blue moon, he'll hear me just reference something in passing and be like, wait, what? Back up. <laughs> like, like it's happened as recently as this year where he's been like, hang on, hang on one more time. What was that? And it'll be something just, oh, well, you know, uh, there were no such thing as dinosaurs. Uh, uh, Satan planted all of their, oh, no, no, that's not it. Oh, there were dinosaurs. Uh, they were created as genetic experiments by the antediluvian population and destroyed in the flood. That's that's why God really had the flood, because pre-flood humans were uh, tampering with his creation, according to Ellen G. White. And I, he had not heard that one yet. <laughs> that one really threw him for a loop. And I was like, yeah, we got taught some pretty weird stuff. Well, it's funny because you you run into a lot of authors who grew up in religious families. And and I, I feel like sometimes that's not a shock at all because a lot of religion yeah. feels very science fiction fantasy. It really does. I mean, Lord, anybody who's read Paradise Lost, you know. Uh, my mom has a story she likes to tell about me where I was about four. And so we're talking like 78, 79. And she had this sewing machine she always used. It had this big gray case with this funny texture to it. I remember she would strike matches on it. 
you know, of all the weird things I remember from my childhood, I have a very distinct memory of her striking matches on the sewing machine case. But uh, I, I have always been chatty. <laughs> I have always told stories. And um, I was telling my mother a story while she was sewing. My mother would sew most of our clothes and say, you know, the type of subculture I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and she's sewing at the dining room table while I'm stomping around the dining room telling her this story. And so at the time I had uh, three cousins. I have more now. That's why I phrase it that way. Uh, it was Arthur, Jackie and Ryan. And we were all fairly close in age and we all spent a lot of time together. So they are featuring in my story. And at some point, I climbed up onto the dining room table, stood behind her sewing machine and like pointed at the sky. And I yelled. And then Jackie said, speak, Lord, for thy servant hear us. And, and my mom's like, yeah. So then I looked up and like, and then what? And apparently all I said was, that's the end. And I hopped up off the table and I left him wanting more. And <laughs> it's just like, that's one of her favorite stories to tell about me. And Jackie said, speak, Lord. <laughs> just, I mean, it, it was. But church was like all we had and all we did ever. And then when I went to live with my dad, I got arrested for shoplifting. I wasn't robbing banks or stealing cars or anything. I was stealing makeup and stuff from a drugstore uh, with, with that same Jackie, actually. Uh, <laughs> if we would sell it at our high school out of our lockers. We were very, very enterprising uh, young young Christians. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I went to public school for the first time the year I lived with him and, and, uh, and then graduated the next year. That's another long story, but. Finally, I got to meet a bunch of people who 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 gave me the raised eyebrow look, but kindly. Right. <laughs> Stupid questions, you know, like, what do you mean, X, Y, Z, P, D, Q? But, uh, man, it was weird times, weird times. Sorry, I'm rambling. But again, I work from home by myself, and now I have someone to talk to. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I find this kind of stuff really interesting because it there's a lot of these things that are, you know, for better or for worse, um, very formative to you know oh, yeah. to creative professionals um that kind of you know like like for me i you know i was raised in a reasonably open-minded but conservative religion you know like religious household and uh but i spent most of my time alone like i i kind of grew up in this big decaying house where all of my i had five older siblings that were all in college by the time i was uh 10 or 12 and oh, you were the baby. Yes, yeah, so I was the baby. And I just I just spent all my time wandering around, you know, talking to myself, playing with my toys by myself. And and so, yeah, but like I had those moments, too, where where I finally started kind of making, you know, quote unquote, normal friends right. and you know, getting that getting that kind side eye of this is what you think is normal. And <laughs> and me realizing, oh, gosh, this is so weird, you know, like. I, I didn't know anything about sports until I was oh, probably 16 or so and started watching football. With, I wish I could say that. <laughs> with, a, with a friend of mine. And and his family was nice enough to, to kind of, you know, explain what was going on because I was baffled by why they were all sitting around the TV, you know, on Sunday afternoon or whatever. And, you know, that but like those kind of little things become very formative to you. Um, once you've kind of you moved moved on to the socializing part of getting older, right? I, I think once your context starts to shift, you know, and, and your your circles broaden. But, but I mean, exactly what you're saying about just talking to yourself all the time. Me and my cousins did that too. Well, one, we were poor. We didn't have a lot of stuff. My dad was in the army, and he was the rich one. <laughs> like literally, anytime we need, we'll ask your father, he's got all the money, and he was again in the army. <laughs> this, this was a, this was not a family with money. But we had a bunch of like old board games and stuff. And I remember 
one day trying to explain to a friend of mine who had come over. And I, I warned them, I'm like, you're going to have to come to church with us. I'm real sorry. But they were curious because they heard some of my stories and were like, all right. Um, so I had to explain that we could play Risk. We had the board game Risk. Mm-hmm. But on Saturdays, we have to play Bible Risk. Bible Risk. And, and that was like the fun thing about my grandfather. If you could make a case for it, he'd allow it. So like, you know, uh, the, the reinforcements uh, card was like the Children of Israel. And uh, oh, oh, the, the Navy was uh, Noah. Uh, the admiral was Noah, and like you know, we just did stuff like that. We're like, okay, well now this guy, this general over here, uh, that's going to be Joshua. Uh, and so, but we would play Risk, and as long as we kept up the charade that we were playing Bible Risk on Saturday, that was okay. And our mothers didn't like it, but if Grandpa allowed it, then then it was that was acceptable because nobody would dare question him. And he was he was lovely. He wasn't like a big you know scary person. He was he was not a big man. Uh, he he had a, a big booming Southern preacher voice. But he, he was a, a calm and reasonable, for the most part, dude. And, uh, and, and whatever he said went. And so you could always appeal to the higher court of grandma if your mothers were acting crazy. That was, that was the deal. But, and I, well, let me put it this way. When my father, and again, my parents by this time had been divorced for a dozen years at least. Uh, when my father's mother died, and they were largely estranged, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but his mother had gone to my grandfather's church in Jacksonville. And my dad called up my grandfather, his ex-father-in-law, and was like, I need your help. You know, my mother's gone. And he was stationed at Fort Knox. We were in Kentucky when it happened. Uh, he, he couldn't get down there to handle it. And my grandfather ran the funeral and all the arrangements for his ex-son-in-law's mother. So there is there's good cooperation to be found there among the same people. But he died uh, not long. He performed our wedding in 2006 and died a few months later. We knew his health wasn't good, but oh, dang. he performed everybody's weddings in the family. So that's how it went. Well, and we just lost grandma to COVID last year. Ooh. We all kind of thought maybe she'd follow right behind him, but well, she was, <sighs> the oof goes bigger than you know, but I, I don't want to bore you with that. It has a lot to do with a bunch of, with my mother and her sisters being Trumpist COVID deniers who refused to get anyone their shots, even their 94-year-old mother with upper respiratory problems. Oof. And then they took her on a road trip to Iowa. Oh, that's good. Where they were very excited about the lack of masks everywhere they went and they could feel like normal. And they came back and they all had it. Oh, man. And grandma died of it a couple months later. Yeah. Ouch. It was, it was, it was yeah, it was an ouch. But I, the truth is... I, well, <laughs> Actually, when you saw me when we first logged on, and we've got some of this working right on on the whiteboard behind me, I have a note for her funeral. She's been cremated. I mean, she's not like, still sitting around, <laughs> uh, but her funeral is is this summer, and I'll be flying down to Florida for it. And uh, she she was a very nice old lady, but honestly, she she hadn't known who I was for. She was a little foggy on what she was doing at our wedding. I think. Yeah. Uh, she 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 didn't really know who I was and hadn't for years. So it's it it is sad, but that was that was something we had already mourned. Yeah. What do you, I mean? What are you going to do? Seriously. But yeah, good times. No, there's there's not much. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm kind of reaching the point in my life where where people that I've known my whole life are starting to pass away, and and I know that that's like a like that's going to be like for me uh, probably a big shift in how I think about mortality and all that stuff, because I haven't had to face a lot of death, you know, around me in my life so far, but I know that that's coming and that's, it's a little terrifying to me. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it, it is really weird as, as you become closer and closer to being with air quotes, uh, like the adults in your family. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like me and my cousins, again, there's, there's nine of us and, and the baby of ours was a surprise. 
uh, uh, that, that same uh, aunt at 40 with the attorney she hired to help her get child support out of the father or two of the other kids. Anyway, has this baby um, who's a beautiful person. And I, I just I just love her to pieces. It's great. But when you have the, these entire, oh, my God, I just completely lost my train of thought. Being the adult. Segwayed over to one. Uh, being the adult. Yes. To being the adult, not the one who one of the ones who's underfoot, you know. And yeah. she, she, the baby of us. I think it's 31 right now. And our mothers are in their 70s. I mean, our parents, my dad is too, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and grandma was the last of us. And in her family, like my grandpa used to joke, you just couldn't kill him. Like <laughs> she was one of, I think, five or six. And they all, like most of them lived to 100, Ooh. except for the one who died of cancer in his late 90s. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, you just can't kill him. And uh, so when, when, when COVID took her, that was, that was bad and wrong and no. But, well, she was 94. and. I mean, and it's not like there was anything I could do. I didn't know if they were taking this road trip, or, or I certainly didn't know the circumstances of it until they were back and my mother was gushing about it on the phone. And I, I was are you insane? You did what? <laughs> and at which point it was literally me yelling at her on the phone that made her go out and get everybody COVID tested. And it turned out that my mother's the only one who didn't get it. Uh, and she didn't get it because she was the only one who had had her shots. And she only got her shots because my sister is with uh, title caps, keeper of the grandchildren. <laughs> and my yeah, sister said she was not allowed to visit. She's like, you cannot see these children until you have your shots. That is where we are. And so that's the main reason. Yeah, that's the that's the um, <laughs> the hammer that you can hold, that some people can hold, yeah. right? I, and I can't. We, we never did have kids. We, we talked for a long, like, you know, we're going to want some someday, right? Probably, you know? And it just kind of never happened. And we decided we were good with that. And, and... I, I guess I, I am bitchy enough that not very many people ask me about it. <laughs> but once I turned 40, everybody kind of just quit asking. I'm like, yeah, that's right. Have some dogs. <laughs> right. You're right. You know, I'm, I'm very satisfied to have pets and to, you know, try to spoil my nieces and nephews here and there. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. That's good enough for me. And Yeah. And my little brother just uh, had a kid, too, which is great. So, um, like I said, I have a much younger half brother and uh, he he and his fiance or his wife uh, eloped and uh, kind of right before the pandemic started really. And uh, now they have this hilarious little boy and I haven't met him yet. He's only a few months old, but my sister's kids and, and this little guy. And, and I'm like, yes, I love other people's kids. Oh my God. I love walking my dogs around kids because they love kids and kids love them. You know? Like, yes, this is a good time, <laughs> but I'm not responsible for any of you because like when, when, when my brother was born and I moved in with them when he was a few months old and I took care of him and then I ended up back in Florida taking care of the surprise new cousin a lot. And then uh, out of uh, college for years, I worked in schools. I worked with school age child care programs and I was taking care of, you know, 25 to 55 of other people's little kids. And I, I genuinely like them and, and I'm always happy to see them and have them around, but, but I don't have any illusions about what's required to take care of them. And, and I, 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 I don't know. I grew up in such havoc, just surrounded by children all the time. And then into my adulthood, surrounded by children all the time. And, and my husband had kind of a bit of a havocky type upbringing as well. He has, a, he has a twin and he has another brother and they were in these little tight quarters. And we both really value our personal space, I think, as much as anything else. Uh, which, which does not account for why we have a cat, <laughs> but uh, it's, yeah, like, like it's worked for us and it's fine. And, and I love, 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 you know, when my friends bring their kids around and I, I like being crazy Aunt Sherry. That is, that is fine. Yeah. That's, that's where the responsibility I want to deal with, you know, kind of ends. Yes. <laughs> 
like if they need something, I mean, you know, you, you drop a hat, I will be there. I will do whatever I can and whatever I have to, but then they got to go home with it. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, I was curious, uh, do you still do urban exploring? Well, not lately. Well, cool. <laughs> um. No, I, I would love to, but I'm not really in a place where that's that's you know such an easy option. Uh, like when you're in the deep south, there's a lot of abandoned crap you can go climbing around in. <laughs> and uh, and I have there there are a couple of places in Chattanooga or the greater Chattanooga area where if I get caught again, hypothetically, I'm going to jail. Um, <laughs> I always wanted to do it in Detroit and never really got a chance, but I did do a really fun panel on urban exploration in Detroit that goes down as one of the best I ever did. It was hilarious. It was me and a real estate agent, which I'm still a little unclear on. <laughs> it was me <laughs> and a real estate agent talking about urban exploration. And she wasn't the kind of person who did that. Mostly she just asked me questions. Yeah. And, and, and so like at one point, this guy stands up in the back and he's like, hey, I got a question. What do you do to keep the cops from harassing you when they catch you and find you? And then they just like throw you on the hood of their car and then they like cuff you and kind of goes on for a minute. And I'm just standing there like, man, I don't. I don't want to cramp your style, but maybe you should put on a hat. Dude had anarchy symbols tattooed all over his head. Oh, yeah, that doesn't help. And a a as well as ACAB tattooed across the back of his head. And I'm like, here's the thing. <laughs> if we're going to break the law, we need to look like the cleanest and squeakiest and friendliest and most otherwise law-abiding citizens that we possibly can. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, if you don't give them a reason to do that, and it was a white guy, too, I think it's relevant to the conversation, at least for this part. I was like, look, if, if you it, it, apologize, say you didn't see the sign, I don't care if you're standing in front of the sign that says no trespassing, you didn't see it. You apologize, you demonstrate that you have not stolen anything, that you do not have any weapons or spray paint. And uh, nine times out of 10, they'll just let you leave. They don't care. Yeah. I, I've always been fascinated by urban exploring. You know, I'll watch the YouTube videos and stuff like that. Oh, but man. but I've uh, like I I'm one of those people that gets so scared of potential consequences that I could never actually do it. <laughs> oh, my God. Years ago, uh, a writer friend of mine, it was Caitlin Kittredge. Me and her were out in the Olympia area out here. And there was the old brewery where they used to was the, old, the old Tumwater Brewery or was it the Red? I don't remember, but it's, it's out in Olympia and it was abandoned. It was huge. It was from the 19th century. And uh, I wanted to go see it. And she was totally, she's going to go with me. It's going to be great. We're going to do this. We're going to sneak into this place. I'm like, no, 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 no. 
um, we will trespass. We're not going to break and enter. If we find a way we can get in, even if it involves being sneaky and unlocking things, we are not you know, breaking and entering. We're just trespassing. Yeah. And we're going to check for X, Y, Z. You know, we're going to check for cameras. We're going to check for how well are the grounds maintained? Is somebody actually keeping an eye on the place? Has anyone come or gone recently? You know, like we're, we're going to be smart about it. Come on. And she, she was younger than me at the time. Now, not enough to make a difference, but then younger enough, to, uh, 10 years or so when she's in her early 20s. And I'm the wizened old 30 something <laughs> urban explorer. But there was this uh, uh, gate, one of those low, low gates that they swing over half paved roads. You know, they're only like knee high. Mm-hmm. And we got to it. It was the edge of the property and she froze. And I like hop over and like, come on. She's like, I've, I've never broken the law before. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, nothing's going to happen. For one, you're a girl. All right. And most cops are not allowed to uh, search female uh, female people they find wandering around unless they have a lady cop present. And most of them do not by sheer statistical likelihood. I'm like, I promise this will be fine. I'll bail you out if they arrest us. Let's go. And, and the place was locked up pretty tight. And I am true to my word. We did not break in. We did not get in. Uh, I, I don't do that. Uh, but probably the weirdest thing that ever happened to me. Oh, my God. It happened right before we moved out here the first time from Tennessee. So th- there is a building in Chattanooga that was built, God, I want to say 1906, 1907, something like that. Uh, it was built to provide hydroelectric power off the Tennessee River, and it has been vacant and in varying stages of decay for, Jesus, since I first moved there in in like 94. Um, and the guy who owns it was kind of treated as sort of like this, you know, iconoclast rebel who's like the city keeps trying to make him do something to the property and he won't do it. And he's fighting him in court. Yar, you know, damn the man, fight the power. And he didn't even live in the city. He lived like in Nashville or something. I don't remember. But anyway, so it's a poured concrete building that was technically, I think, four stories, only four or five stories, but it was much, much taller than you would think. Each individual story uh, level was maybe like the ceiling was like 30, 40 feet high. They were huge. Um, The place had been mostly emptied out and there was a chain link fence around it, but the gate was open one day. And this was across from a development where they had uh, uh, taken some old train depot stuff and turned it into a farmer's market. So my husband and I were there for the farmer's market, and I saw across the street that the gate was open and the front door was basically broken and hanging off its hinges, effectively open. And my husband saw it too and was like, oh no. (laughs) And I was like, no, 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 (laughs) hang on. And I pointed up because you could see in the stairwells, there were already people walking around in there. So I pulled out my phone and I took some pictures and this part is important. I was like demonstrating I did not break this. This was like this when I found it. This was a situation that I trespassed upon. Yeah. Uh, so we go inside and we look around. It's really cool. I took a crap ton of pictures. They're still up on Flickr. <laughs> I mean, this was uh, 2006, maybe. So they're still up on Flickr. And about three weeks after I did that, I should also note next door to the farmer's market was a skate park mm. that had just gone in. So three weeks after this occurred, a kid, a skater kid from the park was with some friends playing around inside that building. And he stepped backwards or he was taking pictures was the story. And um, he took a step backwards and he stepped through a hole in the floor. There was something covering a hole in the floor and he fell through it uh, like I, nearly 100 feet. It had to have been oh. and broke his back. So he was in a coma for ages and ages. The guy who owned the building uh, preemptively started putting off a fight against the family. And they're like, nope, that building was secured. He trespassed. He broke in. Uh, this is all entirely this kid's responsibility. Well, for one thing, it's a kid. The guy's a minor. We we do have different standards for minors for a reason. And what was I going to do? Like shit on the kid for going inside the abandoned building, which was exactly what I had done. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. So here's where it starts to get weird. Turned out 
There were no interior photos of the place taken more recently than, I think, 1967 is what they told me. Crazy. And when I say what they told me, I mean the lawyers who came out of the woodwork because I had the only photos of the place that had been taken in years and years. And I had put them up for free under a Creative Commons license on Flickr so absolutely anybody could find them. And when the kid came out of the coma, the first thing he said was that place was open. I did not break in. I trespassed, yes, but I did not break in. Everything was open. The gate, like the fence was lying on the ground and uh, the front door was wide open. I just walked in and the guy who owned the building was like, that is bullshit. Absolutely not. This is not true. And then the kid's attorney found my pictures on Flickr of the front (laughs) door wide open and the chain link fence down, taken three weeks before the kid went in. So I got dragged into a court case over it right as we were trying to move across the country. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so the, the way it turned out, and, and I just told both sides the truth. I was, I was like, look, I, all I can tell you is the truth. Yes, the building was open. And, and the big bone of contention, uh, because in a civil case, they want 51% blame can, can, can swing it. It doesn't have to be full blame. They, they needed at least 51% to get this guy to help out with his kids' bills and medical bills. Yeah. And uh, they wanted me... And, and honestly, the guy who owned the building, his lawyer was extremely nasty about it. And that's why I blocked him and just started talking to uh, the kid's lawyer. It was like, you need to tell the truth. You need to say that you saw the hole in the floor and you avoided it. That kid was being reckless because th- that was that was the, the determination. Was he reckless? Well, there was a hole in the floor and he, he was too close to it. Like, OK, realistically, what I think probably happened, they were skating inside this giant poured concrete building. But the old elevator shaft that went through all three floors had been covered by these old window coverings. They were like a, uh, like a plexiglass or something that was very wavy and odd. And it had been sun bleached for decades, you know, since the 1900s. And it was really, really brittle. And I had pictures of the elevator shaft that I didn't know was an empty elevator shaft with a window covering dropped on top of it. But I was older and more experienced and I don't step on anything that I can't see the bottom of. So I avoided it. Uh, but I did have photos of it. And I, and so I just, Stop talking to that guy's lawyers and he threatened to subpoena me and all this other crap. And I, the whole thing was just a mess. But I was like, look, here's the thing. Here's the pictures. This is what he fell through. No, he didn't see it. And, and the, other, the other lawyer was very well, but you didn't fall through it. So you must have seen it. No, I didn't. I didn't fall through it. And I didn't go over there because I know not to step on something that isn't poured concrete in a building of this age. This was a 17 year old kid. And the whole thing was just a huge cluster. And I felt really bad. He, the kid never really fully recovered from his injuries. And by sheer stupid coincidence, though I never said anything to the family, and I don't know if they knew, uh, when we lived back in Tennessee for about five years, most recently, um, we've been bouncing back and forth between there and Seattle for a while now. Uh, I ended up living around the corner from him, and uh, I, I saw him in passing a handful of times. And, and by this time, you know, the guy's nearly 30, I guess, in his 30s. Uh, but he never did recover. And right before we moved back here, he actually died. Oh, it, it just, I mean, it just, it, the poor guy, it just, I, I felt terrible about it. And, and all over that stupid building, which is still standing to the best of my knowledge, by the way. And uh, but so, yeah, but you really do have to be careful with it. You can't just, you know, go headlong. And, and so that's why that panel was actually really fun. I got to explain to people and talk to them. All right, well, here's what you do. You bring a friend, you don't bring a gun or a knife. You know, you bring a pocket knife if you want or a Leatherman, you know, you, you you're more likely to run into homeless people or, or maybe, maybe drug users or whatever. And, and they're going to be more intimidated by multiple people than you in a weapon. Yeah. So, so don't do that. And, and you can get in trouble when you have a weapon. So don't, uh, take pictures, have a camera, have a sketch pad, do whatever. Uh, you know, leave only footprints, <laughs> take only pictures. And try to, try to spread that maybe so that younger people, like, just be a little careful. Don't step on anything that you can't see. You know, don't, don't step on stuff that's on the floor if, if you don't know what's underneath it. And, 
So that became added to my talk with a big, big, you know, arrow pointing at it. I, I think that I, I've only done something like that once. And it was um, a friend of mine who lived only about a mile from where I, the house I grew up in. He, uh, way back in the woods behind where he lived, was an old mansion that uh, that mm. had just kind of gotten abandoned, probably based on the cars, I think, that were parked out there, probably in the 50s, just abandoned and left to grow up. You know, all the all the vines and trees and everything. But this mansion was it was it was a legitimately big house. And and I think it was six or eight of us went to this place and we made it like a whole thing. Like we were oh, yeah. it was supposed to be like a snipe hunt. We all had code names. Um, <laughs> this sounds amazing. <laughs> no, it was it genuinely was fun. But like timid Brian, like I was always hanging at the back, always thinking, OK, this is how horror movies start. We're all going to die. And, and honestly, it was, a, it was a blast. We went, we just, none of us, we didn't break anything. We didn't graffiti anything. We just wandered around and looked at things for two hours and then went home. Um, oh, that's fantastic. But like, but I, I, I still remember that very clearly. And, and I, there's part of me that wishes that I had done more things like that when I was younger. <laughs> uh, then there's another part of me that's like, you know, it's probably best that I didn't. No, no, no. It's, 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 I, I feel like if you're treating a place with respect and you're taking responsibility for yourself, you know, and, 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 and you're a slick talker who, who isn't afraid of cops, um, <laughs> you, can, you can have a lot of fun. But probably my favorite. I'll try to keep it quick. I'm sorry. I know I have so many of these. I love them. There used to be in Chattanooga this tuberculosis sanitarium called Pine Breeze. Oh, now that's definitely how a horror movie starts. Yes. No, so me and a handful of friends, <laughs> and we used to go up there. We found out they were going to tear it down. And we wanted to go take pictures of it. So it was established as a hospital, like in the late 19th century. And um, it had been, it, it had closed and then gone through a bunch of other permutations, including like a cooking school. And then it was a, a home for disturbed adolescents when it closed in 1977 or 78. Um, so me and a handful of friends took two or three trips of it. That place was scary as shit. I'm not going to lie. And the last time something happened that we, we did not come back after that, it was, it was too, uh, to, nope, nope. This is this is how horror movies start. <laughs> but the first couple times we went, it, it was actually really cool. And at one point, it was me and and uh, two guy friends, one of whom was a punk wearing a dress with traffic cone orange colored hair. And this was like this was like '95. You just didn't see that all the time in the rural South, you know. Yeah. Um. And and a, and a girlfriend of mine from just a friend of mine from the girls' dorm in college. And so it was the four of us in this guy's jeep. And uh, it, it's around this, it, we called it by the duck pond. So there's a, a cemetery with a duck pond and it's one little road and this one little turn off. And the thing is, there's nowhere to park. So if anybody saw your car up there, everybody knew what you were doing. Yeah. So, but, but he has, he's got four wheel drive. It's a beater Jeep, you know, so he's not too worried about getting it beat up. So we climb up this hill and he parks it where he thinks maybe nobody from the main road can see it. And we spend a couple hours poking around. We have a wonderful time. There were, I think, 11 buildings uh, all told. And some of them had already, including the crematorium where they would burn the bodies of the people who had died there. Uh, that was the first building they tore down. I'm not making any of this up, by the way. <laughs> this is a real place. This is a real thing that happened. So uh, we took a bunch of pictures. And in, in the dormitory in the Lupton building, uh, there were two wings, one for boys and one for girls. And these kids had drawn these murals all over the walls. And we were taking pictures of them. And if, I lost those pictures in a breakup years later. These things happened. But, but this did happen. And I do have witnesses. So finally, we've been down like one of these back buildings. So this was across maybe maybe five acres. This was a compound. This wasn't just a, you know, a building. And we come back up to the Jeep. And uh, 
parked right beside it is a cop car. <laughs> and there's a cop sitting on the hood. And he's like a 1980s Hollywood cop. He's got the cop stash and the cop glasses and the cop uniform. And he's just like, hey there, kids. I, we were all like 19. You know, I think I think we ranged in age from, I, I think, uh, 18 to 21. You know, we were young. Yeah. Like, hi. He's like, why don't you uh, come over here, have a little seat for a second. We're like, okay. So we come up to the hill and he's like, you know, whose who's vehicle is this? Whatever. And so we're sitting on the hood of the Jeep and he's sitting on the, or leaning against uh, his, his car and we're facing each other and he's kind of doing the, the cop thing, you know. And uh, he's like, okay, well, looks like you guys aren't up to anything too crazy. Uh, just listen, you know, they're tearing this place down. You don't get to do this again. Knock it off. Just leave. Okay. And it, listen, I've always been mouthy. <laughs> it's like, wait, I was like, but, but, but wait. There's only one more building we have to see. We all had cameras. We all hold up our cameras. And we're like, look, we're just taking pictures. And, and, and there's just this one building that we haven't gotten to yet. And it's the one that was the dormitory with the kids where they drew all the stuff on the walls. And we really wanted to take pictures of that. And it's just right there. It, like, it, there was kind of a, a main area. And that's where we had parked. And, and that was one of the buildings on the main kind of landing area. And so he looks at the building and he looks at us. And like, he was wearing sunglasses, but I could tell that he was rolling his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> He was like audibly rolling his eyes and he's like, okay, I have to tell you to leave now. That is my job. So you have to go back to your car. Again, we are sitting on the car, Yeah. but if on the way back to your car, you were to stop by that building, I would have no way of knowing about it. Would I? So we're like, oh my God, oh my God, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And he's like, uh-uh, I did not give you permission to do shit. I am getting in my car. I'm driving to the bottom of the hill and I'm going to wait for your car for, for this Jeep, whatever, to, to come back down. And if I don't see you in 20 minutes, I'm coming back up and this conversation goes different. Yeah. We're like, <laughs> you were squealing anyway. And so <laughs> we ran over there and took all of our pictures. And, and uh, yeah, anyway, it is gone now. But the great thing is they actually put up a, uh, so they, they hired a construction company to, to clear it out, you know, to demo all the buildings, obviously, like you do. And they were going to put in like some kind of office park or something up there. It, but the, the demo was only supposed to take like nine months and it took like four years because they couldn't keep crew members because of all the spooky shit that kept happening there. <laughs> and then they, oh man, I'm serious. Uh, I actually did a call in rate. Well, I'll, I'll say that in a second. Uh, so uh, then they were going to put like, and, and I, I think this is what ended up. I think they ended up putting some kind of like subdivision out there, but nobody would buy the houses and no one could figure out why, because the investors were out of town. People who did not know it was on the site of a tuberculosis hospital where 2000 people had died and no one in their right mind wanted to live there. So yeah, it's gone now and there's other stuff there. But, but before we left Tennessee again, I was doing this radio show where I was a guest over Halloween because when you write scary stories, everybody wants you to tell them a scary story or they want to tell you their scary story. Yeah. So it was a local radio show and, and we had a bunch of people calling in and it'd be stuff like, ooh, did you hear about the ghost that haunts the Chattanooga Choo Choo? Uh, there's a lady in brown and she, she, she wanders the tracks and she's waiting for her husband to come back from the Civil War, but he's dead. Ma'am, they didn't start building the Choo Choo until 1907. <laughs> Click. Well, did you hear the one about the, the white lady? The lady in white who haunts the Reed House room 237. Oh, she was killed by a Union general. She was a prostitute during the war. The Reed House wasn't built until 1922, ma'am. Click. Yeah, so we got a bunch of those. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's the problem with knowing your local ghost stories. Um, so then this guy comes out. He's like, hi, I was on the demo crew that was hired to tear down Pine Breeze. And like, there's music playing because we're taking the calls while the music is playing. And, we're, and, and me and the DJ suddenly got real quiet. We're like, go on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, long story.
story short, he was a guy who, who uh, he, so he was a white guy and a lot of the crew were, were Mexican-American men and he did not speak Spanish very well. So him telling the story back and forth was a little odd and, and probably kind of racist in retrospect, but he was trying to explain it kindly and fairly. He just didn't have the vocabulary. But the thrust of it was um, a lot of his co-workers kept hearing and seeing things and just up and leaving in the middle of the day and saying, absolutely not. We're not dealing with this. And he was starting to make fun of them for being, you know, superstitious and backwards, her, her, her. Uh, when one day he climbs into his, uh, I think it was a backhoe. I don't remember what he said it was. He climbs in and he puts the key in to start it and he hears a child scream in his ear. And so he freaks out and he stops. And he looks around and there's nobody there. He's, he's just supposed to drive this thing down to the work site at the rest of the, the thing. And uh, so he's like, shit, well, I must be crazy. So he, he puts the key in again and hears like a group of children screaming like they're right there in the cab with him. And so he starts panicking. He turns it off or just pulls out the key. And he's like, I just sat there holding my hands up with my keys in my hand. And I heard this voice as clear as day in my ear go, what are you even doing here anyway? <laughs> he's like, uh, so anyway, I walked back down the hill. I handed him my keys and I quit. And it turns out they actually kept a bunch of children there because a bunch of parents ended up getting tuberculosis and they had a, a level uh, like the top level on one of the buildings had been like the children's ward. And we'd never gotten up there because uh, the staircases were, were shot and we weren't going to take a chance on it. Yeah. But there, there had actually basically been like a live in daycare on the premises and a bunch of the kids had caught it too. And some of them had died. And yeah. So local ghost stories. Huzzah. Right. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> that was cool as shit. But yeah, no, the last time we went there, just some, some bad, weird things happened. And, and, and we just decided that maybe maybe this place could just go ahead and get torn down and that would be all right. <laughs> but uh, no, but I, I love poking around old places. And honestly, it's one of the only things me and my mom really have in common. Uh, when I was a kid, my mom would always pull over if there was like a new development that was being built because she'd love to just... It, it's another thing I got from her, just a sense of entitlement where I'll just wander in if the door's open. And... Uh, she liked to poke around these old or these houses that were being built. Yeah. And, and so we would, we would do a lot of that too. So it's like, I am also nosy that way. And uh, I, I had, I had one summer when I was in college that I was back home and um, my brother was working for this small construction contractor. And, uh, and the guy just wanted somebody to show up at the sites and kind of, you know, clean up the sawdust and, and just kind of straighten things when the, the workers weren't there so that if the client showed up, it, it looked a little nicer. So yeah, I got like 10 bucks an hour to do that for, you know, a couple of months. Nice. And, uh, and so it was just me alone in these kind of building sites for these big houses. And honestly, I loved that. I loved wandering around and looking at all the, you know, the things without like, the, like seeing crawl spaces that didn't have any, you know, framing around them and stuff like that. You know, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's like seeing the bones of something. Yeah. The bones of this house that's going to go. Show up. me the bones of this stuff. Yeah. Very cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, you were asking if I was still doing urban exploration, but when I tell stories, they're all about being back in the South and back in the Southeast because there's a lot more abandoned buildings, frankly, uh, less so now than there used to be. But I mean, when I was in my late teens and through college living in Chattanooga, uh, the downtown core there was, was just a wasteland. Mm -hmm. uh, literally the only thing at the South end of the city was the choo-choo and it had this big still has uh this this big garish uh neon light you know chattanooga choo choo on top like this weird crown you know um but it was surrounded by just absolute urban waste uh because back in the 60s everything that you know the rail lines pulled up and and that was just it there was no more where it wasn't even like a bad part of town there was just nothing there there was no one there and you could quite literally just wander around and and push open doors and walk into warehouses walk in but, uh, shit where that where that um 
the farmer's market was. Uh, used to be a giant train depot that I personally had let myself into and poked around in <laughs> before they restored it and turned it into a thing. <laughs> and we bought this house. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, yeah, it was wild. I was so glad they saved it. I, I hate seeing that stuff torn down. I love it when, when people can, can reuse it nicely. But like uh, we bought this house in an older part of the city called St. Elmo that I, I loved terribly. It was a historic home. But it was one of these houses that had, or one of these neighborhoods that had had some boom and bust times and was, was struggling to come out of a bust time uh, when we bought it. And now we could not buy that house back for more than twice what we paid for it. But so it goes. Uh, but a friend of mine who was helping us move in was like, holy shit, I've been in this house before. <laughs> there's a door. He's like, no, there's a, there's a door down the side on the basement, right? And I was like, yeah, there's a crawl space out front with a door. He's like, yeah, yeah, we all came inside of here. We, we threw a party. <laughs> In the 90s. <laughs> He's like, well, it was vacant. Nobody lived here. Nobody cared. I'm like, holy shit, you, you partied in my house. He's like, it did not look like this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's just, I, I don't know, there's kind of found quality to it. You know, like this whole city where everything was sort of found. Yeah. And, and, and now I'm in Seattle where uh, there's not that much to speak of when it comes to old and empty stuff. Uh, but I love the underground tour and it's the thing I take everybody on uh, when they're passing through touristing. And in fact, I took it so many times at one point they offered me a job <laughs> because like I knew all the stories they were going to tell. And it, when you take it a bunch of times, you, you get a different tour guide each time, you know, and you, you kind of hear what everybody's personal, like you get the main overview, but everybody has a couple stories that they personally like to tell that the other guys don't tell. Yeah. So I would be like quietly in the back was filling in the gaps to like whoever I was with, you know, <laughs> And uh, they noticed, and uh, I was embarrassed. So I just tipped well on my way out. But. <laughs> <laughs> we we were in London a few years ago, and we uh, went down to Dover to spend a day at the castle. And uh, we went down into the wartime tunnels, and it was this rainy spring afternoon, and there was nobody else there. And so it was just me and my wife and this one French kid who never took his headphones off. <laughs> And then the tour guide. And honestly, it was amazing. We were just able to just chat with the tour guide the whole time. And he told us about the ghost stories. And he told us all the you know crazy little things that he's kind of picked up over the years. It was just so much fun. I love that stuff. Now, I, I, I collect ghost stories everywhere I go. I mean, actually, I collect, I, I literally physically do. When I travel, I always try to find a bookstore and like ask the local book section where you find like the weird little self-pubbed or indie pubs, like ghost of the greater whatever the hell area. <laughs> I love this. I have like two shelves of those. Oh, right, right. <laughs> or in the library. Just like, yes, give me, give me your trashy, weird ass. Because, because it's the way, it's the way places remember interesting characters that are gone, you know? It's, you talk about them like they're still here and, and kind of keep them in rotation. And, and I love that. That's where I get the best ideas and the best. Stories. That's cool. Well, hey, I've kept you for quite a long time. That's okay. I'm happy to talk to you. <laughs> no, no, no. I like, to, I like to finish these off really quick with a um, kind of a left field question. Okay. Um, what's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Hmm. That is an excellent question. You got to understand, man, I've been living on DoorDash and like ramen and, <laughs> and donuts for the last two years. Um, shoot i don't know oh well no that's okay it's stupid but i'm gonna say it anyway <laughs> no, um, do it. i was adventure i was i was adventure picking in the grocery store the other day because I, I went hungry which you're not supposed to do obviously for these reasons <laughs> but i went to the grocery store hungry and i was in the frozen desserts aisle for some reason my husband wanted some ice cream for some reason and uh and martha stewart's apple peach frozen hand pies are absolutely forking phenomenal they're really, really good. I was so excited. I had found something new and delicious to, to sustain me during this difficult time. 
and you bake them for 25 minutes and they're perfect. They, they literally just taste like homemade and then you dump a bunch of ice cream on them and they're fantastic. Other than that, the only thing I can think of is that there's this really great Indian place, Indian food place. I can't even think of what it's called. It's something very generic and a strip mall out by South Center Mall, the little mom and pop joint and their food is phenomenal. And we only just discovered them recently. So we've been eating there like every weekend. <laughs> Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. But no, but we haven't, you know, I just say we haven't been out and around and eating anything in a long time. So <laughs> I'm dying for a burger. Like the best burger I have access to right now is maybe five guys. And I like them fine, but uh, I can do better. <laughs> <laughs> like they're good. They're good. But See, I, I figured out that I can, I can make stuff better for most for most burger and barbecue places, I, I'm I'm better than they are. I do love barbecue too. Oh, and some I was all concerned because I, I got into a conversation on Twitter about white barbecue sauce. Like, what the hell is this atrocity? <laughs> I ask you, and uh, people were kind of mixed on it. Like, yeah, I mean, it's good with chicken and good with this. It's kind of like ranch with vinegar, and I'm like, I, you're not selling me on it. I don't. It's like when people tell you that pig skins aren't really pig skins. Well, what? Calling them pigskins is an improvement. Good God, what are they? <laughs> and I don't want to put that in my mouth. Um, but yeah, yeah, delicious stuff. Now, see, now I'm hungry. Thank you. And I'm actually going to the grocery store after this. So I'm going to have to have a snack first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take that granola bar right before you leave. Oh, shit. Now, now I'm like, man, oh, I should have this. But no, I, I'm not much of a cook. I don't like to cook. Mm -hmm. I, my husband's a good cook, but I, I don't much. I'd rather just, and, and left to my own devices, I'll just subsist on like, cereal and chef boyardee i i, I kind of eat like trash to be perfectly blunt I, i'm not very picky and and it's just never really mattered to me yeah but uh M michelle's pretty much the same way she's just like you know if if you don't feel like cooking we're having cereal tonight yeah yeah no absolutely or, or doordash now my, right. my husband had a had a medical issue last year he ended up in the hospital for a little bit and i was freaking out and uh, bill schaefer over at subterranean uh kind of saw me wigging out and sent me a, a, a gift certificate basically for DoorDash. So it's like, here, it sounds like you could, yes, <laughs> thank you. This is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> and so now we spend entirely too much on it. Quite frankly, I had been avoiding it because I knew me I, and I knew I was going to do that. But uh, that, that was a very thoughtful gift that I was very appreciative. And we are still, uh, oh, oh, that's long spent. Don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm still <laughs> appreciating the, the DoorDash. Oh yeah. That was author Sherry Priest. Thanks so much to Sherry for taking the time to chat. You can find links to Sherry's website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, and audio. Don't forget that my next epic fantasy, In the Shadow of Lightning, is now up for pre-order. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website, or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Huge thanks to Kyle Anderson, Patrick Hunt, Elijah, Jennifer and Angela Johnson, and Ivor Gullickson for their backing on Patreon. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. 
It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.